0: Good night.
1: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining and show street. will start your mornings off on the, the right foot. Here's your host, street. Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone.
2: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Sherry Campbell. Uh, Dr. Campbell, PhD psychologist, uh, has had Two decades of clinical training and experience uh, cu- uh counseling uh in counseling and providing psychotherapy services in California she has a private practice specializes in psychotherapy with adults and teenagers which includes marriage and family therapy grief counseling childhood trauma sexual issues personality disorders and many more. Uh her new book is Loving Yourself: The Mastery of Being Your Own Person. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Campbell. Thank you so much for having me. I always love being on your show, Catherine. Great. Yes. Always great to have you on the show, but we got a new topic this time. And um loving yourself, the mastery of being your own person. Now one of the things you say or you have said, and of course I think most of us can identify with this, that we all have moments where we don't love how we responded to a situation or how we acted. And we're always kind of like kicking ourselves, why did I say that? Why did I do that? Well, obviously, this is an example of not loving yourself, not feeling confident, and not being the mastery of your own person. So uh, your book, which is what we're going to talk about, tells us how we can do that, how we're not always, and, and some of us are more engaged in those kinds of situations than others, obviously. Um, I think most of the time, I feel pretty good about the way I acted, but boy, I could give you several examples in the past couple of weeks where I needed to read your book. So, <laughs> How do we do this? Well, I think uh, we have to be
3: incredibly mindful. I mean, life is going to bring us challenges, and um, so many of us get stuck in this, this uh, happiness pursuit that we don't accept that life is still going to bring us challenges, and so we are not learning to live effectively in the challenge. And so we lose our composure or we handle our business, our, our emotions like a, you know, a young child <laughs> where we want our way and we get loud and, and we say things that we don't mean and, and, and we don't hand, handle them like an adult. You know, and our, our emotions can definitely make us drop about 10 IQ points. So I think that part of, of loving yourself is, is being in a challenge and learning to live in that challenge effectively.
2: So what you're saying, if we love ourselves, then we're going to be hand, hand, be able to handle ourselves. And I think I'm quoting you, kind of handling your emotions like a business, you say, rather than, and, uh, well, for instance, in my case, like a little girl or women who we feel like we need to be nurtured and reassured. No, that's not how we should respond. We need to be able to handle our – I like that quote, handling our emotions like a business. Um, yeah, how do, because if we want to be taken seriously – how seriously are we going to be taken if we're
3: needy and desperate and begging for reassurance? I mean, that's a childlike way to handle your emotion. But that kind of uh, emotional handling requires parenting, you know, from, from someone else. And you don't want your partner parenting you. You want your partner taking you seriously or your boss or your friend, you know, whoever it is. And so I think it's about knowing what the emotion is, not judging it as good or bad, but just thinking, I want to live effectively in this emotion. I want to handle this effectively. And so I i always think about my emotions are my business. And I want any business I'm in to be taken seriously. And so I take my emotions in and handle them like a business. It doesn't mean I don't feel
2: them. I just get to choose how I'm going to act them out. How big a problem do you think this is? I mean, you have a lot of experience, obviously, dealing with people over these past 20 years. The people you see tend to have a problem because they're coming to you as a, as a therapist, as a psychologist. But generally speaking, what we're talking about today are not necessarily people who uh feel so out of touch with themselves or so un-in-love with themselves or so out of control that they have to see a therapist. But this is – we're going to be talking about like just practical advice for um, – probably almost all of us at some time and and probably many times, let's say throughout the year, feel this kind of out of control, emotionally childish way of responding to people and situations and, and conflict and problems.
3: Yeah. I mean, this I think is every human, you know what I mean? I mean, we are all human beings. We're going to all have these moments, but I think the holidays and being around your family a lot, especially brings this up. Um, we tend to feel like we have to react to every emotion that we have and we really don't, you know, emotions. If if you look at them uh, for what they really are, they're supposed to be energies that kind of pass through. If we grab onto it and we judge it and we, we chew on it, we get more and more mad and we fester on it, then we are not likely to handle that with any kind of elegance. We're likely to create a war with all of our justifications, why we're correct and we go after that person, and we're coming at them in such a way that they can't hear us. So you can do all those same things, but I I always say take a break. You know, if you're really, really upset, that is not the time to communicate. You know, get yourself settled down. Think about it. Look at why you feel that
2: way. Put
3: it into a business plan, (laughs) then approach the person. Well, So how um, do you do but, that?
2: Like you're in the, like, I mean, Sherry, let's say you're in the moment. I mean, it sounds really good and and it and it mm-hmm. is effective, you know, responding to what you're talking about, but yeah. let's say you are in the moment. Let's either actually there with the person, um, and as you say, during the holidays it, everything gets exacerbated usually because there's lots of family oh, yeah. and a lot of people together who aren't always together, but when they come together, they're supposed to love one another and be happy, and they're not. But let so we have two cases, like, Somebody's right there in the room with you and we give, maybe just give an example or you're on the phone. I mean, and you're starting to get into something with your mother-in-law. What do you do? Hang up on her and then get a presence of mind and then call back or specifically, how do you get into this? Well, you have no, you have seven steps to being able to do this. Yeah. Like mindfulness yeah, is I, one. I how do you that do that?
3: Step, yeah. The first step would, first of all, you don't want to hang up on her because you're already asked, acting childish, but it's about, the first one's about being mindful you know, think you have to, if you are in a place where you know, you cannot handle this effectively, it does not need to be handled right then. So honestly, what I do in my personal life is I will look at my mom or, or, or my partner or whatever. And I will say, I am not in a place to handle this effectively. And it's going to be a non-productive conversation. So we need to handle this at another time, meaning tomorrow, or give me a couple hours and I'll, try to give a time frame on it. And that person who's on the other side of me usually agrees, but if they're angry, they'll go, no, we need to handle this now, and you can get pressure that way. But that's because they're also in the moment of not being able to handle their emotions very effectively. And so this is where things are said between people that never get healed. And so there is nothing wrong. It's not an emergency. We feel like it is in that moment. But in that moment, you've got to bring in with you an adult who can say, I'm not going to handle this effectively. And when I look back on this in five years, I want to be able to know that I handled it the way that I want to be. So part of part of doing that is terminating that uh, that conversation at that moment. There is nothing that cannot be handled at another time, whether that's an hour later, two hours later, that there's absolutely nothing that can't be handled at another time. And when we're mad, we don't we don't uh, believe that. But that's part of the change that, that the person has to make is to understand that not everything has to be handled right now. No matter how bad you think you want resolution, you're not going to get it being
2: angry and needy and desperate. And don't you think that some people have a knack or have a way of trying to... Get you engaged and to make you feel that it has to be handled immediately. Um, I know that happens very often. I mean, with as a social worker working with people who are getting divorced. Uh, you know, there's yeah. there whoa, <laughs> we have to handle this right now. You know, it has to do with the kids or it has to do with money or whatever. And, and yeah. you know, really can get the other person feeling that, whoa, it has to be done immediately. And that's when you get into the kind of behavior you're talking about. So just disengage. Yeah. Just disengage. That's such good advice. Mindfulness. Think about it. This is not what I can do right now in an adult way. And just postpone it.
3: Postpone it, because the thing is, is I work with divorcing couples quite a bit, and I've never seen, I think prison inmates are nicer to each other, you know, <laughs> than, than divorcing couples with kids. I mean, it's unbelievable what you see. Um, I have to teach this, because otherwise, uh, people lose self-love. They look back on that, and they have self-hatred because they handled it so poorly, you know, the only person we can control is ourselves. So if you know in a moment that you're really angry, it's learning to be in touch with your feelings and looking at, you want to handle this effectively. That's what matters more to you. It matters more to you to handle it effectively than being right. So in a lot of ways, being mindful about your emotion means you got to take your ego out of needing to win, you know, and you've got to take that break, whatever it is. And Uh, It honestly, personally, works for me phenomenal because um, I'm sort of from a family that there's a lot of bait and there's a lot of manipulation and there's a lot of that, and I have found so much power in being able to say to one of those family members that is somewhat manipulative to say I'm I'm not going to engage in this conversation right now. I need to get my thoughts together, and when I get them together, then I'll get back with you. But right now, I'm not going to handle this conversation. The other wonderful thing that happens out of that is once you get away from it and you're not tied into the fight or flight, I need to defend myself, uh, type of situation, sometimes you don't even need to reapproach the conversation because it was just, uh, not worthy of discussion. And it will pass. But we don't want to give ourselves time. You know, patience is the ability to wait without acting out in a negative way.
2: That is, And I imagine it also applies, Uh, I mean, it does apply with your children as well. I mean, a frustrated parent with three kids screaming at them, and then you start screaming back, and that's not helpful. you got to step away. I mean, it it, it, it really works almost in any kind of an encounter with another human being, doesn't it?
3: It works everywhere. I mean, I, I had a patient in this week saying, you know, my son... He doesn't take care of his things and then he can't find anything and then instead of looking for it, he just starts screaming, ha, ah, you know, I can't find this. And so this makes my patient angry, right? Because emotions are contagious, very contagious. So he gets infected by the son screaming and not looking for the thing and he goes in there and yells at his son. I'm like, okay, but you're going in and dropping down to the level of a 10 year old, but wanting him to behave differently. You know, so I gave him a strategy of to go in, move slowly, <laughs> talk slowly, and use brevity. That kid will shape up right now. That doesn't always work with an adult, but that will work with a kid.
2: Well, with adults, so, you've mentioned that it's another thing, because in, in your book you talk about seven steps to the development of your inner elegance. So I guess that's what, if we had to define what we're talking about, is it inner elegance, just... Uh, behaving or responding elegantly. Yes. yes it's, uh, it's, mindfulness it's, being it's, one way. But then you talk mindful. about, yeah, mindful. How about grace? I mean, um I don't think of myself as graceful. <laughs> uh, I don't think of myself as chaotic, but um what is, I mean, grace, I think of Grace Kelly. <laughs> I mean, but grace is what? I mean, how can all, do all of us have the ability to respond with grace and also what, Dr. Campbell, what do you, how do you see it in the context of the kind of behavior we're talking about, like losing well, your temper? I would temper say losing... graceful
3: would be like looking at something, moving slowly through it. There's not an emergency. Um, it's about having a quiet, confidence. you know, you speak with uh, brevity, uh, dignity, and being in control of yourself. So you're deliberate um, without being pushy. You know, I think that it's just about staying anchored in yourself. It's hard. This is not easy stuff. It's easy to write. It's harder to live because you have to focus on it. Again, emotions are contagious. So if someone's coming at you with a whole bunch of immaturity, you're likely to go right down to that level without you even realizing it. So being mindful, which is, you know, the first way is sort of gathering yourself and looking at this like, okay, I want to handle this effectively. So then, go right into gracefulness. Just move slowly, talk slowly, and listen a lot.
2: You know, some people um, have this. Do you think that some people, in, in your practice, or just you know personally, or your family and friends, some people just sort of have. A, 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 I don't want to say born with it because they have to nurture it. I think at the same time, have the ability to do that. And other people, whatever their chemical makeup is, it's really mm-hmm. difficult for them to do that. Really difficult. Um, more difficult yes, than it is. Te- yeah,
3: it is temperament based, um, and yet everyone can do it. It's just harder for some people than others. But how bad do you want to feel good about yourself? You know, I mean, whether it's harder for you or not, it shouldn't be your challenge. It should be your path to happiness is being in a challenge and living effectively. Can or we even
2: supply, being in a challenge? I don't just. Can we apply this, because I think this really fits as you're talking, to the recent event that that happened on Korean Airlines, I mean, with the uh, Mm -hmm. daughter and the vice chairman or the vice president of the company sitting there as a passenger, and I losing it because her, as I understand it, the macadamia nuts were served not on a plate, (laughs) but served in a plastic bag, and actually turning a airline around to go back to the gate, to either let, well, I'm not sure whether they actually let the employee off, but anyway, isn't that kind of an example of what we don't want to do, <laughs> which has really far-reaching consequences? It does. I mean, that, that,
3: you know, obviously, what a childish way to act out and what a whole lot of power, you know, that, that, that girl had. And she turned an airline around over macadamia nuts, and this is why many of us use the fight or flight. Because in the moment, we may get what we want, yet it's the after effect of it that people don't think about. When you handle your emotions so childishly, you may get what you want in that moment, but it's after that moment, all the embarrassment, all of the loathing, all of the recrimination that, that you know, she'll get from other people, that does not bring you happiness. Power and happiness are different. You know, passive, aggressive people, very aggressive people... May get power in that moment, but they have to continually fight in a very negative way to get power. But power and happiness are fundamentally different. You know, power is extremely immature; it can be immature. Leadership is different, right? Leadership is being the captain of your own boat, looking at how you affect the bigger picture, and having a sense of imm- uh, a sense of maturity to you, self control. You know, you have a sense of class to you. You're inventive. You're willing to be flexible in those moments. Um, You're clear about who you are. You're not afraid to be yourself. But you don't need to do that with any sort of drama. You know, if you think about the guy who landed the plane in the Hudson, Sully Sullenberger, right? Right? This man, in the most high intense situation, with everyone on that plane in the back, freaking out, was able to do this. So. so
2: he, he, if, yeah, he's the ultimate example of what you're he's talking the about. I mean, I think. Ultimate example. Yeah. You
3: know? I mean, but aspire to something like that. It's possible. He landed a plane in the Hudson and he didn't break the plane open. That doesn't happen. Why? Because he was in control of himself. He was able to grab onto his rational thought. He blocked everything else out. And he saved God knows how many lives. If he can do that midair, then we can work hard enough on the ground <laughs> with our mother next to us and be able to do it.
2: Yeah. We are not under that extreme kind of pressure. I mean, that's like the, no. you can't get any more, there's no more pressure than that. And having to, in this case, having to act within seconds or they all would have been dead. So, yeah, right. I guess, Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe taking it—it's not really taking it down a notch—but maybe the example you could give would be, and you talk about leadership and being able to act that way um, in in a stressful situation. Leadership, a good coach is that way. Good coaches who have oh, winning best, yeah, teams. Yeah.
3: yeah, I mean, if you think of—I write for Entrepreneur uh, Magazine, and I always am, uh, my favorite topic is leadership because great leaders are composed. And they also, they'll, they'll have a sense of drama to them, right, to inspire group morale or, uh, they'll, they'll quickly and efficiently get rid of someone who's an emotion, who's emotionally out of control because they create dis-ease. You know, they create disease through a team. And so leaders are very mindful of their own emotions so that they can work with someone else's emotions. If emotions are contagious and you're in a conflict with someone right in front of you, why can't you then grab control of your own emotions? Because the moment one person is in control, that also settles the conversation down. It's when we get infected by the out-of-control person that we both get out of control. But we still, as a person who wants to live effectively, someone in front of you can be as out of control as they want to be and throw any dig at you. It's still your choice to respond. Is
2: it yeah. hard?
3: Absolutely.
2: It's One so has a hard. choice, uh, yes, and I think that has to be that little bubble. I have a choice. It's not mm-hmm. like I have to do this. I have to respond and I have to respond immediately. I think without getting too political, but this is how I feel about it, I think that, uh, that uh, President Obama is able to do that and that he gets actually mm-hmm. criticized yes. for it because he, like, he doesn't jump on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. He is reserved. He's whatever you want to say. I think he's a brilliant man. And he does, in, in, when everything is said and done, um, he has kept our country safe. He does, reacts, responds, but he doesn't respond. Well, for I mean, I think the Ebola crisis was, was a good example. Didn't respond oh, to gosh, the yeah. press, driving everybody crazy because we had four cases of Ebola in the United States that we had to quarantine the whole country. I mean, that's kind of an to me that's kind of an example, and I think he behaves that way, but people see it mm-hmm. as, as as negative. You know
3: what, Catherine, I agree with you 100%. When I watched him debate with McCain and McCain's rolling his eyes and acting so childish, (laughs) Obama didn't ever engage. He never, ever took the bait, you know, and he took the country on it at a pretty hard time. I don't know any president that would have (laughs) done a whole lot better, you know, and he still stays composed. And I think that most people, most People are not on the road less traveled. And so they can't identify with his grace and his maturity. But he will go down in history as one very intelligent man, um, so well-spoken, and and he does lead. But his ability to stay calm um, does have an impact on the public. And I think that he's, you know, he's so uh, talked poorly about, but I think on a personality level, this man has it totally together. He is calm, whether he's in an interview on TV, he's calm and firm when he's giving a speech, and he's clear. He's clarity. 100% clear. He's just not a drama maker.
2: Yeah, I agree. And, and, uh, and, and, I think history will kind of prove that out, but I, I, I totally, I think, yeah, cause as you, when you're talking, he, he is, you know, besides Sully Sullenberger, he's another, um, mm-hmm. example, I think that we can aspire to. Um, I agree. Yeah. I, I agree.
3: Wanna... You know, I think that there's value always in, in coaching, even like you've talked about motivating a team, having excitement and doing all of those things. But I think the great, about leaders is they look for people who cannot handle their emotions effectively, and they get rid of them because they know it creates dis-ease. One family member, it takes one toxic family member to poison an entire holiday, just one. It took one person on that plane to turn it all the way around and have to go back. That's how powerful negative emotion is. But it doesn't derive happiness for people. And so what we want always as a human being is to love ourselves, to be happy, in other words. We want to feel fulfillment. If you cannot handle yourself effectively, you are not going to feel fulfillment, and that isn't someone else's fault.
2: It's much easier to uh, tear things down than to build things up. You can knock down a building in, a, mm. in an attic, right, a, a tall yes. skyscraper. It takes months and sometimes years to build it. So, um mm-hmm. Yeah, which is another example of that. So. And you know, learning to be this way takes
3: such practice. And so when I'm in it, I'm practicing it always. And I always, always mantra to myself to keep myself calm. If I'm, let's say I'm with a patient who's acting out irately toward me, I will literally just breathe. I'll focus on my posture and I listen. No matter how bad I want to go back after that person. I just think live effectively. I want to look back on this and be know that I was effective. And I have that self-talk now going through my head as I have an irate person in front of me.
2: Do you think it's more difficult to do it with family members? I find for myself, oh God, yes, when you talk about the one toxic family member, which is so true, and you can have twenty others in a room yes. it's that one who dominates and controls and creates okay. the anger and the chaos and the whole thing. I have more difficulty in those situations than I do say in a work situation
3: Me um, too.
2: Or, yeah,
3: yeah, because they trigger your deepest stuff, you know they they know your buttons a lot better than you know a client or a friend or whatever is going to know, you know, family knows just where to hit you and um, can get you off balance so quickly. And and um, also, you know, living effectively also, you know, on the flip side is this isn't about being perfect. You know, let's say you have a moment and you lose it. You know, you lose it at the holiday, you have a moment. There's still ownership of your behavior that you can take and you can um, – do that with or to the the people that you had the poor interaction with, and you can say, I wish I would have handled myself more effectively. You can still come back and repair, and then you can analyze that situation and think, how could I have done that better? Also, what if there's a family member you can't do any better around because they've just got you jujitsu on every trigger you have? You have the right to not be around that family member. You have to yeah. love yourself enough to know that this is one person that I cannot be effective around, and I will lose my self-control every time I'm there. You do have that right.
2: Well, what do you do when it's your mother's 80th birthday, <clears throat> and everybody's going to be there for a somewhat intimate birthday party, not a big party where when there bigger parties, are always easy because you don't have to be with that person or the person who's the toxic one. What do you do? How do you handle yourself? You don't Lost not go opposite. to the...
3: You can go out with mom on your own, let her know that out of love and care for her, you don't want to make any kind of a scene at the party. Obviously, she's going to know who your problems are with. You can do that. You can also tell mom, I'm going to come, but the minute if I feel anything is going to go wrong, then I'm going to gracefully leave, you know, or I'm going to come and I'm going to choose not to interact with so-and-so. You know, I mean, there's so many options. We think there's no options, but there are so many options. All it is about is about
2: communicating. And, you know? and maybe in this case, the example I just gave you, you can, you have the opportunity to think about it before you go. Have a few options for mm-hmm. yourself. I mean, because it's not something that's necessarily going to be a surprise. You're prepared. So this, this, if this happens. Like you said, I can leave the party, yeah. I can,
3: yeah. you know, I have
2: other choices, but to, to just stay there and take it or to actually leave. There might be, there are other choices. You know, we only, it's always great talking to you, and we can keep, but we only have two minutes left. Oh. <laughs> so so I don't want to end too abruptly, and I just want to be, because I want everyone to ha- We, we, you know, we've covered some of what's in the book, but there's lots of really good uh, advice and uh pointers for loving yourself and being the master of yeah. your own person. Yeah, the mastery yeah. of being your own person. So, um, Sherry, Dr. Campbell, where do we go? What website do we want to direct people to?
3: Uh, Sherry Campbell, dot uh, com. And I have a wonderful, like, 60,000-person Facebook following. I blog every day about this stuff, every day I'm blogging about this stuff. You're going to get advice every day on how to handle it. And the book is about family.
2: Um, so
3: if you're triggered by family, this is the book to get.
2: Uh, this is definitely the book to get, and this is a good book to get uh, during this particular season as well when families are getting together and you're going to be confronted with these issues all the time. Uh, great. We'll have you on the show again. Thanks so much for uh, for talking with us this morning. It was great. Dr. Sherry Campbell, Loving Yourself, The Mastery of Being Your Own Person is her new book. Um, We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Um, You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute.
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Family caregivers face some tough challenges every day in caring for a partner, Tune in to Family Caregivers Unite, live every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Ah, a nice glass of wine is very refreshing after the end of a long day. But have you ever considered the story behind the wine? Tune in to Bacchus & Beery Wine Radio. With your hosts, Roger and Donna Beery. You'll meet some of the people behind the world's wineries, travel the wine country, and learn more about that glass that you're enjoying. Roger and Donna will also give would-be vintners a behind-the-scenes look at starting a winery. Bacchus & Beery Wine Radio airs live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Variety. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
2: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Paul Smith, author of Parenting with a Story, Real-Life Lessons in Character for Parents and Children to Share. Well, Paul is a um, sought-after expert on leadership and storytelling techniques. Uh, He has his MBA from the Wharton School of Business at the University of Pennsylvania and is Director of Market Research at the Procter & Gamble Company. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Paul.
4: Well, thanks very much for having me. It's great to be here.
2: Great to have you. Okay, so this is your new book, and I, as a parent, I have three children, but they're grown, so um in, in reading your book, I found it, I found it very helpful and very, really right on target. You know, sometimes you read these books, you're a parent, and you're thinking, well, you know, this sounds good, but it's not really gonna work. But um, your book, Parenting with a Story, uh, presents this collection, well, which was of stories, 101 stories, which are organized with a purpose, um, chapter by chapter, real life stories reinforce 23 character traits, vital for children to grow into responsible, successful, caring adults. so that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, what made you decide to go around and get real life stories and, and from all these people 101 stories and um, I, I guess draw from their experience. As, and knowledge to help decide what character traits make for hot, productive uh, adults.
4: Yeah. Well, I, so first of all, I think most parents uh, want to impart the wisdom of, of their lifetime to their kids, you know, if for no other reason than just to spare their kids the the time and pain of making all of their own mistakes, right? I mean, they're, they're going to have to make a number of their own mistakes anyway, but, you know, as, as much as we'd love to minimize the number that they absolutely have to make themselves, I think we'd all love to do that. And I think many of us have figured out that that uh, sharing a, a story, um, you know, even if it's just one about you when you were a kid and faced a similar situation and perhaps made a mistake or, or did something good and either suffered the consequences or enjoyed the consequences – is a better way to teach that lesson than just wagging our finger at our kids and, and telling them what to do or, or what to think. And um, the, the problem with that, though, that I, I found, at least in my own parenting, is that I don't have enough of those kind of really good stories to teach the lessons that I want to teach. And so I thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we had you know, the, the best two or three stories or just one best story from you know, 100 people around the world that would teach these kind of lessons, uh, and do so in a better way than, like I said, just wagging your finger at your kid and telling them what to do. And so that's what set me off on the journey to do
2: it. So to, first, what kinds of traits are we talking about? What do we want to instill in our children? I mean, besides the overall good character, how do we? What What are those traits?
4: Yeah. So you know, when I when I started uh, doing the interviews, I I had a short list of things that I thought should be in the book. So the, the obvious things like um, integrity and hard work and kindness and humility and things like that, Uh, but I have to admit, the list I ended up with was not at all the list that I started with, Um, and and so I backed into what these were based on the lessons in the stories that I heard from these people's lives, so after interviewing 100 people and and getting six, seven, or eight stories from each of them, I, of course, had a, a, a list of six, seven, or 800 stories.
2: How did you find the people? How did you pick the? How did you decide who you were going to get? I know they come from different professions, different backgrounds, and I use it around the world. But what made you decide on each particular interview? How did you determine who you were going to interview?
4: Yeah, I I started just with the people that I know and the people around me, family and friends, and people that I knew from different walks of life and grew up in different countries because I I wanted to get a diversity of backgrounds. And then the last question I typically asked in each interview was. Now that you know the kind of things I'm looking for, is there somebody you would suggest that I talk to? And inevitably, I got the, oh my gosh, you got to talk to my cousin Bob, and he's, you know, got all these great stories, or he's had this amazing life, or something incredible happened to him. And so, it just through a, a, a very unscientific process like that, I ended up getting to just some some really amazing people. And and you know, to answer your your first question, the kind of character traits that that ended up yielding. Are things like ambition or open-mindedness and creativity and courage and, like I said, hard work and perseverance. But uh, those are all all things about how we are as a person. But how we treat others is a large part of character as well. So things like kindness and patience and fairness and humility and respect for other people, you know, came to the top of the list as well.
2: So this, it really kind of evolved. Organically, I guess you had you know you started out thinking one thing in terms of the characteristics and uh, who you were going to choose as uh, interviewees, um, but that changed along the way.
4: Yeah, and I, I'm I'm finding now here with m- this with being my second book that that's not at all unusual. Uh, often you end up writing something a, a bit different than what you started out to, and and I think that makes it a much better book and a much better process because, uh, you know, otherwise I would have to pretend that I know everything uh, before <laughs> embarking on the project, and, and that's just not the case. You, you, you learn quite a bit as the author going through the research.
2: All right, so let's talk about some of the stories and how they apply. Yeah, um, so because, I'll, I'll um, give you
4: an example. Um, so, uh, in fact, one that's very personal to me and, and that I've shared with my kids quite a bit. Uh, when I was uh, 16 or 17 years old, my father got me a job working at the same company where he worked. And of course, you know, at, at the age of 16 or 17, my job was filing papers and sweeping the floor, and uh, pretty much the lowest uh, lowest level work in, in the company. Uh, but I was really excited to find out that one day a year, my boss was required to take me out and buy me lunch, and that was on what they called at the time Secretary's Day. And it's got a different name today, but this is back in 1986, and I was very excited about that day. And and so all the managers were taking all of their their secretaries at the time out to lunch that day, Um, and so they rented, uh, basically had reserved a big room in a local restaurant for this one company for all the bosses to take their their people out, and I ended up sitting at the same table with my father, who was there with his administrator, and uh, this is, you'll have to understand, this is, like I said, back in the mid-80s, and it's not too long after the book, Real Men Don't Eat Quiche was published and became wildly popular. And if you don't remember it, it was this, this uh, tongue-in-cheek look at the feminization of the American male at the time. And so everybody, certainly all the men in the room, <clears throat> had their, their sensitivities heightened to the fact that eating quiche made you look something less than, than manly. And <clears throat> so oddly enough, as the, uh, the waitress was coming around, she, she told us that there were only two items on the menu for lunch. <clears throat> One was a club sandwich, and the other was a quiche Lorraine. And, of course, you know, all the men very quickly ordered the club sandwich, um, until, including me, of course, until it got around to my dad. And he said, you know, I've, I've never had quiche before, so I tell you what, how about you bring me half a quiche and a half a club sandwich? That way, if I don't like the, the quiche, I've still got the half a club sandwich. And, of course, the ridicule just began, and the, the men at the table began challenging my father's masculinity in more creative language than I had ever heard in my life up until that point. And so I was mortified sitting there listening to my father getting dressed down like this in front of these, you know, all these people. And after four or five minutes, you know, he finally broke and called the waitress back over. And, of course, all the men at the table started high-fiving each other that they'd, you know, they'd broken his spirit, I guess, which was, which was their intent. And I was, of course, thinking, oh, thank goodness this nightmare is going to be over and we can just get on with it. Well, the waitress gets back over and he says, "Look, I'm sorry. I need to change my order. I, I ordered a half a quiche and a half a club sandwich, and I need you to to take back that half a club sandwich and I need you to bring me the whole quiche." And I got to tell you that the the table was silent, and now here are all these slack jawed men like wondering what had just happened. You know, they thought they had they had broken him with their ridicule. And to this day i, I still don 't know if my dad likes quiche, but I know that on that day he ate the whole quiche with a smile on his face, and it just taught me more than anything else about what it means you know to to be a man or to be an adult and just not care what other people think of you and you know so here i am it 's thirty some odd years later i 've got kids of my own, and I share that story with them, and it teaches them a lesson about how to respond to peer pressure and you know so for example, my oldest boy's fourteen and if, he, if he's getting teased at school about not, you know, wearing his pants down below his waist, as is, you know, unfortunately the fashion these days, you know, he he now knows how to respond. You know, he can uh, he can he can ask me what to do, and I can try and give him advice and it's like, you know, boy, you should stand up to peer pressure. But that doesn't let him know should I should I walk away? Should I argue with him? Should I start a fight? I mean, it just doesn't help that much to give platitudes. But telling him that story, he knows, oh. I'll do what Grandpa did, and I'll do the opposite of what they're teasing me, you know, for
2: doing. So well, I'll I mean, pull this seems to be higher. something, uh, obviously, that could be a, is effective with the bullying, because, you know, you're taking it a few steps further, you know, teasing into bullying. It's the same kind of thing. But is that the only story? I mean, uh, like, this is a good example. You know, your kid is wearing something different than the what the other boys are wearing. So, I mean, do you continue to, okay, Grandpa has that example, this example of Grandpa and the quiche. Are there other examples that you continually give him or advice, because this is probably something that's fairly ongoing. Um, and then there are other situations besides wearing your pants below your waist. So what do you do? Just keep, how do you handle it?
4: Well, now now that I've told him that story, the only advice I have to give him is, you know, have you tried eating the quiche? And, you know, no matter what the, the thing he's being teased over, that simply reminds him of the story, and he'll be reminded to, To try doing the thing more until his tormentor just gets frustrated and walks away. Uh, Now, of course, if it doesn't work, then he's got to try something else. But you know, it's it's a different way to provide advice than just telling him, you know, stand up to peer pressure or stand up to a bully. Or I mean, that's just not very helpful. And even if it was, uh, even if you were specific about what you should do with giving that advice, oftentimes kids don't want to follow your advice simply because you're telling them what to do the story lets them kind of make their own decision about what to do.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's always dangerous as a parent or it doesn't seem, it doesn't work well if you're if you are always telling them what needs to be done, they don't have the opportunity to make their own choices too given the information exactly. perhaps that you've told them and you also so I mean I think that what you're saying is really is key is important. Okay. So what else? I mean, that's a great example of um standing up for yourself. Your your father um, and not bowing to the to a whole group. I mean, that's uh, so. What else? What are there stories that I mean? You have 101 stories there that um, maybe are very different than that story.
4: Yeah. So so let, let's try one about how you should treat other people. So for example, uh, respecting other people, perhaps that are different than you. Um, one of my favorite uh, is about a young young man named Chad, and when he was in high school, he was the captain of the basketball team and uh several of the other players on the team were over at his house uh one night for dinner before a big game and as teenage boys do they end up you know talking about girls of course and uh but one girl they ended up talking about was a very special girl I'll just call Jenny and uh Jenny uh was a lovely young woman and very uh very intelligent but she had a, a number of very physical disabilities so she was in a wheelchair and she um, I think was blind in one eye and had some deformity in her arms and and couldn't speak very well and um, in fact, she had to use a computer to type out her words, and it would synthesize her voice for her, kind of like Stephen Hawking. And so you can imagine the kind of things they might have to say about her were not very kind things. But basically, they were making fun of her behind her back, you know, over at Chad's house one night. And uh, Chad's father apparently overheard this conversation, and what he did about it was just brilliant. Um, he ended up he came to school the next day in the middle of the day during lunchtime found his kid in the cafeteria who's sitting with the, basically the same boys that he was with last night, and he walks up and he just asks, son, where's the girl? And of course his son immediately knows what he's talking about, and he says, oh my gosh, dad, I'm so sorry about what we said about you know Jenny last night. Please please don't embarrass me here in front of my friends. And he just again says, son, where's the girl? So Chad points over to the table in the middle of the cafeteria where, where Jenny's sitting probably by herself. Uh, and he says, all right, I need you and the rest of the boys to follow me right now, and we're going to go talk to Jenny. And, of course, they didn't want to, but they, you know, he convinced them to do it, and they followed and He asked her four questions in front of those boys that just completely changed the way they think about how they treat other people. He sat down and he asked Jenny, he said, um, who's your best friend? And her answer was, my mom, Stacy, which, of course, probably spoke more about her lack of social network at school than it did about her relationship with a mom. But that, that, of course, was not lost on these boys. Then he asked, what does your dad do for a living? Her answer was, I don't know who my father is. Pretty sobering answer. The third question was, how long have you been in a wheelchair? Her answer was, my whole life. You know, Again, to these boys who spend their days running up and down on a basketball court, here's a girl that will never do that. But then the last question really kind of did it for them. He he said, what is it that you dream of and love to do the most? And her answer was, I love listening to the girls cheer at the boys' basketball game, their basketball games. So if there was any shame left in these boys that hadn't come out at that point, it did at that point. And, of course... The way they thought about Jenny and treated her as well as most of the other kids at school that probably talked about her the same way radically changed because that you know half the cafeteria was listening by that point and, and that 's what they were talking about at school for the next few weeks and in fact, she ended up getting uh, to be the an honorary captain of the cheerleading squad for a few weeks after that. so you know that kind of a story you, you, you can just feel the the shame and the angst that the characters in that would have felt you know if you had been in that. And it's just hard to hear a story like that and continue to talk about people in a, in a poor way.
2: Yeah. I think it's impossible because now you experience. It. I mean, now you you have a relationship with Jenny. The impact of how I mean right. that the, obviously the questions that he asked her um, were pretty insightful, and her responses were so open, I guess, and, and honest. Um, that's quite a story. It's a it's a tearjerker. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that's a really good example of of, of learning by example, I guess, is what you're talking about, learning by these stories. But uh, what other stories do you – I mean, let's take a couple of the other ones because we have uh, a few minutes left, so ones that would represent maybe a a different kind of a situation.
4: Yeah, so uh, I'll share another personal one with you, and this is about courage. Uh, courage to pursue your dream. In fact, it's the thing that got me to where I am today. Because uh, you'd you mentioned that I worked at Procter and Gamble, and I did for 20 years, but I don't anymore. And this story is how I, I ended up doing what I do now for a living, which is which is write books and speak to audiences. And and it really just happened a year or so ago. And you mentioned, I, I think that uh, you know, if you have kids, um, teaching them through stories. Uh, you know, you think that that might stop when they move out of the house, but it doesn't uh, because this involves a story my father told me just a year ago. Um, I'd written him a letter to ask him for advice because here I was, 20 years at this company, too young for retirement, um, but really had a passion to, to write books and speak to audiences for a living. And, um, but I was you know, struggling with that decision to leave a, a, you know, a great-paying job with good benefits to go do something very risky, and I got, I got kids to put through college myself. And instead of just giving me advice, my father wrote me back a letter And he just told me a story about himself when he was five years old that I had never heard before. And his letter said, um, you know, son, when I was five years old, I knew exactly what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be a singer, you know, like Frank Sinatra or Tony Bennett. You know, that was his genre. He's 82 years old now. And he said, in fact, the first day of first grade, the teacher asked if anybody had any special talent. And I raised my hand, and I said, I'm a singer. And, of course, she invited him to stand up and sing a song in front of the entire you know, uh, class at that moment. And he said, despite the fact that I, have never, I had never sung in front of an audience other than my mom at the time, I stood up and I belted out my favorite song. He even remembered exactly what the song was. And he said, I nailed it. You know, I got all the words, all the melody right. They're cappella in front of everybody. And he said, and the students and the teacher stood up and they applauded me. And that's when I knew for sure This is what I was destined to do with my life. And he went on to say, unfortunately, that wasn't just the first time in my life I sang in front of an audience. It turned out to be the last time, too. He said, Son that was 75 years ago, and there's not a day that goes by that I don't regret it. He said, you know, life just got in the way. you know, And I, I, quite frankly, just never had the courage to pursue that dream. And he said, someday you're going to be 80 years old like me. You're going to wake up, and it's going to be too late to pursue your dream. And he, he closed the letter by, by saying – the, the words that literally took my breath away. He said, I'd love to see you achieve your dream, but that doesn't mean in your lifetime, son. That means in mine. And i got to tell you, there is not much more that can motivate a 46-year-old man than to have his 80-some-odd-year-old father tell him to do something you know, in his lifetime. And so quite literally, that week, I walked into my boss's office and I resigned from my 20-year career to pursue a dream. And, and and that's what I needed. I lacked the courage to do it. I'd already figured out financially and, and, and even emotionally and logically that this is what I wanted to do, but I was just afraid to do it. And that story just gave me the courage to pursue that dream. And, and it, what it really made me realize is that all of us probably have some kind of dream that we want to pursue that we're afraid to pursue, but there's probably somebody else in our life that wants us to achieve it just as much as we do. And so, if you won't follow your dream for your sake, you know, do it for that somebody else in your life.
2: You know, that reminds me of. I think it was one of. That's a great story. Obviously, I love to hear the personal stories. But I think there was something that I, an example or a story in your book, and maybe it was in the beginning of which struck home with me because this is something that my. Father always imparted with me and giving me telling stories or giving examples. But the girl who grew up in a small town, and uh, her father was a professor at a small liberal arts college, mm-hmm. um, and I, I can't remember the name of the college. And she was like a really smart kid, and she took her SATs, and I guess she was a, you know a, a national merit scholar finalist, and she had all these opportunities, but she decided. She, you know, there wasn't enough money in the family for her to go to an Ivy League school, so she better not apply and just go to the school that her father taught at, which was a perfectly good small liberal arts school. And so she went to that school, got her degree, didn't apply to an Ivy League school. Um, And then many years later, um, she realized, I guess, as part of her regrets was that she never gave herself the opportunity or the choice. Like, why not apply to an Ivy League school, see if she gets a scholarship, and if she does, then she could have gone. And she always regretted the fact that she never even tried. And that was a story that my father always said to me, well, you're not sure that you want to go to the Ivy League school or take that job or or do something that I would think or thought that was out of my reach. He said, why don't you apply? Why don't you try? If you get in... It's your choice. You don't have to go, but let it be your choice, not their choice. And, and that applies in so many different situations. And it's a story that I always tell my kids. You know what? You can always make it your choice. See if you can do it. And if you, and if, if, if you do and you have the opportunity, great. If you don't, you go on to next.
4: Yeah, that was uh, that was Kelly Olson, and it was Hendrix College uh, in Conway, Arkansas, that she attended. Yeah, and you you told it well, and I think that's exactly the lesson that people should should learn from it. Is we end up, I think, and this is what I learned in a lot of these interviews, people end up regretting more of the things that they didn't do and wish they had than things they did do and wish they hadn't. And that's something she wishes wishes that she had done. Yeah, well,
2: I I think that's true. Is one. You know, and I'm a, older than you are, but I think that's really true. People regret what they didn't do, what they didn't try to do, what they didn't challenge themselves to do, uh, more than the mistakes that they made, and even if they were big mistakes. Um, so I think, obviously, we only have a couple minutes left. One good reason to read your book, obviously, um, because there are, you know, we only talked a couple stories, and um, there are 101 of these stories, parenting with a story, real-life lessons in character for parents and children to share. Um Paul, is there a website that we can go to?
4: Uh, Yes, please. So uh, leadwithastory.com is uh, my website. It's got information about my first book and and this new book, uh, Parenting with a Story. And I've got a podcast there that your listeners, if you want to listen to some of these uh, stories, I, I put them out once a week or so.
2: Oh, great. Terrific. Paul Smith, thanks so much for being on the show this morning.
4: Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.
2: Parenting with a Story, Real-Life Lessons and Character for Parents and Children to Share. You can buy it at bookstores everywhere online. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.